Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Happy at Work podcast. We are so excited to have Alexis Fink here with us today. She's the VP of People Analytics at Meta. Welcome, Alexis. Hey, Laura. It's wonderful to talk to you this morning. Yes. So good that you're here. And we know each other, just so for people who are listening, if you see that we're particularly giggly or, you know, being funny about things, we do have... um, a history of knowing each other over time. So I'm even more thrilled um, that you agreed to be with us today, Alexis. This will be fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. So let's start. I, we always like to start with kind of a career story, a little bit yeah. of, I guess you've got such an awesome career. And so tell us a little bit about some of the highlights um, and where you are now, what you're doing now. Yeah. Uh, if we do it sort of linearly, my first job in people analytics or industrial organizational psychology was actually in January of 1992. I fell deeply in love with this field. Uh, I got to do an internship while I was still an undergrad and just immediately realized this is how I wanted to spend my adulthood. So I was hooked from the word go. Um, if we move forward, I had the opportunity to uh, to work doing um, large-scale like business and work process design at both within the General Motors family and within um, a manufacturing environment uh, for BASF, which is the world's largest chemical company. Uh, then I followed you actually to Microsoft, got to have my first formal people analytics job there, did some of my career's best work, uh, which was wonderful. Uh, left there and joined Intel, which is a leading semiconductor manufacturer, a 50-year-old, 50-plus-year-old company, and got to build a people analytics function there, as well as a couple of other jobs. Uh, and now I've been for the last four and a half years at Meta, leading what I am absolutely confident is the world's best people analytics function. It is just fantastic, the work that we get to do, the environment we get to do it in. Uh, And so I've been playing with that for the last four and a half years. Um, In between times, I had some little side hustles, as as young people often do. And interestingly, the one that I have found most relevant to the work I do now, and speaking of happy at work, one of the ones that was most joyful, is I did a summer of summer stock theater when I was in college. And it's fascinating to me the way I have continued to use all the things you learn about how to use your voice and how to use tempo and how to use where you're putting your body in space and how to use costume to create an experience in the people you're engaging with. Whether you're trying to get uh, leaders around to an idea or you're trying to convince people that they can do something that they didn't realize they can do, how you can help create confidence uh, or maybe tamp down a little bit of confidence so people can be more open to other ideas. So it was really, um, I occasionally stop and reflect how the least IO psychology of my jobs <laughs> actually is one of the ones I draw on all the time. 
That's so cool. You know, it is interesting, isn't it? When two very different worlds come together, that's when some of the best stuff happens. It seems like when you like, this has nothing to do with this, but, but it does, right? You know, you're so right. It totally does. And one of my, uh, sort of mm, side quests when I was at BASF was in a supply chain team. And you would think that supply chain wouldn't have very much to do with all of this people stuff I do, but it really does when you're thinking about now there's this big move to a skills-based talent strategy. When you're thinking about how do you build leaders, which are often five or 10 years in the future, that's not that different than managing, you know, multi-year global supply chains uh, where you have to make a lot of hedges and how many suppliers do you really need to make sure that you have the continuous availability of a really critical part or whatever else. It's not that different from all the people processes right. as folks get more sophisticated in strategic workforce planning. So there's tremendous overlap in lots of places. Yeah, completely. I love it. Well, I think you know that this podcast focuses a lot on positive psychology and positive psychology at work. Um, and one aspect of positive psychology that we care a lot about is well-being. Mm -hmm. And so well-being is also something I've done a lot of work in. I just wonder if you could share with us maybe some examples or an example of a data-driven approach or initiative um, that you've worked on that's been related to the topic of well-being. You know, that is such a fantastic question. And I'm, I'm going to guess that you've talked about this more than once. So I'm going to try to stretch people's thinking a little bit. <laughs> um, and honestly, my favorite example goes, uh, back to when I was doing like job process redesign and years and years and years ago, uh, we did a large project trying to sort of save a, uh, you know, 200 person, uh, location plant for the company I was working for. And the particular example that I'll, I'll walk through was in the conflict between maintenance and production. Mm -hmm. And there was lots of overtime and there was lots of distrust and there was lots of high conflict and there were really uh, unpredictable hours when people had to be on a call schedule and just, it was hard. And so we didn't actually go in trying to fix well-being as a first principle. Although it was, of course, on the list because that was sort of like something I can't get away from, right? I'm always going to be paying attention to that. But we really focused on how do we redesign these jobs so we can engineer the conflict out of them? How do we redesign these jobs so that we can engineer the unpredictability that impacts people's lives and family lives out of them? How do we look at the business process and find places where things are falling apart and figure out a way to turn slightly to the left, you know, the morning before you expect it to fall apart so that you can have a more predictable outcome. And it turned out that we changed, we did some embedding, we built uh, a different kind of team structure that wasn't strictly department based and was more pod based. And I did this in a bunch of different organizations. But this particular example, I actually really like using because I, uh, shortly after we did this, like a, six or eight months after we did this, I was putting together a set of slides on the sort of benefits of these projects we'd been running. And it had like, here's all this money we've saved and here's all this cycle time we've saved and we've saved customers by reducing how long it took to deliver. And my very last slide was that we had saved three marriages. And, and the backstory is 
I had gone to the Christmas party for this site. It was in Portsmouth, Virginia, where near where you and I lived, right? So I happened to be in town. I went to the Christmas party. And it turns out that there were, it was a pod of about 15 people that was the most high conflict. And of them, three of them were separated from their spouses when we started this project. And one of the spouses is behind me in the buffet line and she catches me and she says, I don't know what you did. And you may bleep this, but, but he's not an asshole anymore. And so like, the way, like we'd gotten rid of like stress and grouchiness. We'd gotten him out of being like in heightened conflict all the time. We'd taught some strategies about how to focus on problems instead of people. Like there were a bunch of things we did around that, but actually then I started poking around and found that all three of the folks that had been separated from their spouses at the beginning of the project had reconciled. Like we literally saved families. And I thought this matters, right? And and there are lots of things you can do in positive psychology that will matter, but maybe kind of superficial and they don't get to the fundamentals of work. Right. So this focus on job design really mattered. And it was this transformative experience for me. So I've carried that forward. Love that example so much. Don't you find, and I don't know if maybe it's just the the world I'm in right now, but I find that most organizations aren't doing that anymore. Like I remember in the olden days, we, we focused a lot on job analysis, job design, what jobs are supposed to be. And now it just feels like a job is just as much as you can possibly do until you cry uncle, right? Like it, <laughs> there's not a lot of rational rationalizing of like, this is what is enough for a job or this is what it looks like and this is how it attaches to other jobs. I just feel like there's less of that kind of work than there used to be, but it might just be in my own kind of the circles I'm in. Do you see a lot of that kind of like thoughtful job design work anymore? So I think both things are true. I don't see (laughs) as much as I used to, right? right? There was a time when we were really thoughtful and it seems what I personally am seeing um, and having conversations with friends is much more around a level of abstraction above. So they'll spend time on an organization's operating model. Yes. But then they won't translate into the hard work of what does that mean in terms of how how the swim lanes come through, where the break points are, uh, what skills naturally aggregate together or what pieces of process ownership would naturally aggregate together to really optimize. And it's actually too bad because another project that I did kind of in the same era of my career, we did a, um, an agent-based model. So we looked at every task and we assigned them all to agents, sort of actors in a simulation. And we ran an optimization model, um, which is sort of today you'd put that in the, in the category of artificial intelligence to really figure out like where were the bottlenecks and how do we do this? Yeah. We were able to, you know, do great things, save the plant. You can talk about that later if you want. Um, but the thing, it took us months to build that model because the technology was so crappy oh. 20 years ago and it was transformative. And now the technology to do that kind of thing and the speed of processing to do that kind of thing and the ability to look at models in more robust ways is so much higher. And yet I don't see people in the talent space leaning into using those tools. And it really, um, I think it's really a missed opportunity, not just for organizational efficiency, but also for figuring out ways that you can um, add just a little bit of stretch. 
that would be like gratifying and keep people yeah. challenged and interested, do small amounts of exchanges of work. So where is there like a natural yin and yang? You can put people together. Right. Like there's lots we could be doing with some of these diagnostic tools that um, I'm super excited to see kind of the generation coming up behind us that has facility with these tools. Yeah. Right. Maybe also spending time with some of these I mean, when I was doing these, they were on sticky notes, right? So older technologies about how you do this <laughs> to figure out how we're really going to design work as as sort of a fundamental way of being inside an organization. Yes, yes. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, when we think about well-being, one of the kind of natural next places, at least I go, is this idea of how well-being and employee engagement are related to each other. Yeah. It's not a perfect correlation between the two, but they kind of go hand in hand, right? And I think about it like the um, idea of well-being being the fuel to the engine, right? If the engine is engagement and that energy you get, well-being is the fuel to that. It's how it helps us sustain that. So I was curious about the, in the topic of engagement, like tools that you feel like you have done a really good job um, that you've used that help us understand engagement at a, at a deeper level um, and maybe how they're related to how engagement and well-being are related to each other. Ah, oh, I love it. So the obvious stuff uh, is going to be things like surveys, exit interviews, talking to candidates, and in particular, candidate declines mm. is a really interesting uh, uh, opportunity, spaces. More interesting, though, are the opportunities put forward by NLP, so natural language processing. How can you really get underneath uh, what's in someone's mind and do that at scale so that you're not reading comments from a 5% sample, but you're looking at everything and you can look at all of the nuances that might go with various slices of your population. Org network analysis, I think, is a really interesting one as well. If you think about the level of connectivity, the sort of power that comes with some of that connectivity, the nature of it, whether it's connecting to higher ups or connecting to people with whom you have affinity in some way, I think there's also really interesting ways to think about internal mobility, not just as a piece of career, but also the patterns. So are there managers that some people take an extra 30% of time to leave because that manager is amazing and they don't want to go away? Right. Are there managers who, when people leave them, are disproportionately likely to be promoted because they're investing in those people? And those outcomes aren't directly related to engagement and happiness per se, but it, they shouldn't be unrelated. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 Um, because you're assuming that in this instance, I'm assuming that growth is also tied to engagement is also tied to at least feelings of self-efficacy and satisfaction, if not happiness per se. Yeah. And meaning and purpose and yeah, all that good stuff. And the last group that I think is really interesting, and I know you've done work in this space too, is looking at sort of rehires and boomerangs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just like when people go for an extended period of time in a foreign country, they are students going on uh, a semester abroad, they are young adults going on an expat assignment, something like this. When you come home, you see it in a clearer, you see your home in sort of clearer eyes. And the rehires and boomerangs, I think, can also help us think through like what's interesting in our organization, what's painful in our organization that like the parable about the boiled frog, they didn't notice while they were here. I, those are really interesting data sources that can give you good qualitative and textual meaning 
about sort of the why behind how an organization or a job or a particular manager or a configuration of tasks either works or doesn't work. Yeah. And what's special and unique about that organization relative to others? I think the, that grass isn't always greener idea, right? It's yeah. like you think it's so miserable and then you s- experience something else that's a different kind of miserable <laughs> that it's like, oh, well, I liked my miserable better, right? I mean, that sounds really negative. I, <laughs> but you know, it's not really negative. Like, but I, <laughs> I think you're kind of touching on, uh, since this is a psychology podcast, you're kind of touching on the hedonic treadmill. Yes. The things that are aimed at pleasure sort of lose their luster pretty quickly. And so if you're chasing whatever, flexible work or something. And as a person who likes flexible work, please don't take this as a diss on that. But if you're chasing something that feels kind of perky, you might lose the fundamentals of those things that we know give kind of meaning and happiness. If you looked at like the Harvard multi-generational well-being study, mm-hmm. it was not the kind of perk type things that people chase that really gave meaning to people's lives. It was relationships and feeling like they were contributing in some way. And boy, I remember reading a study a while ago that in particular, the New York City sewer workers were really highly engaged and really felt good about the role they were playing in the well-being of the city that they loved. And, and they felt like they were really, and not just they felt like it's true. They really were guardians protecting people in this way that matters viscerally. And they were, you know, moving around as sort of unsung heroes. I had this sort of, uh, um, just deep, deeply, deeply felt sense of purpose and goodness and value. And you wouldn't normally think like, wow, New York City sewer workers, that's going to be a sexy job. Uh, They don't play ping pong tables at lunch. Uh, But that sense of meaning really, really mattered. So I love the whole the whole meaning and purpose arena is so interesting to me. Barry Schwartz, Dr. Barry Schwartz, he wrote a book about why we work and a bunch of other books. Um, I love him. And I just every time he'll he'll tell stories like that of right different organizations that sort of figured out how to attach people to that, right? How to help people see that. And, you know, there's so many jobs that are obvious that have purpose that somehow we haven't helped people see. (laughs) And then there's the ones that are super hard, like the one you just saw and and people have done it. And so it's such an opportunity, right? In in all of us. Yep. I, I just love it so much. That's really good. Really good example. So um, work-life integration, you know, the, I, the, the evolution of work-life balance, work-life integration idea, right? It, it matters a lot, right? We all know mm-hmm. that that is an important part of our well-being. So I'm curious about your thoughts around how can organizations really support work-life integration and what strategies have you seen organizations do uh, use to address it. And maybe in your own life, you know, maybe ways that you have found to really think about having a life outside of work. Because I know work is a big part of of what. (laughs) You know, it's interesting that you raise this because I, I have been a single parent with small kids. I was, they're not small anymore. I was a single parent, a solo parent with small kids, multiple kind of complicated small kids for a long time. 
And it's interesting that I used radically different strategies at different points in my career. And those radically different strategies could work really well. Hmm. So there was a period of time when I was on very high travel and I left my house reliably like 8 a.m. on Monday morning. I got home about 6 p.m. on Thursday night. I did like 20 hour days when I was away. And then I was off on Fridays. I like every doctor's appointment, every we're going to go to the zoo. I had a full on three day weekend and it was the best work life boundaries I've ever had. Because when I was at work, I was a hundred percent work. Yeah. I was work. I'm not kidding when I say a lot of them were 20 hour days. Right. But then when I was home, I did that job for five years. And in five years, I think my boss called me on a Friday twice and he apologized. The first words out of his mouth were an apology both times. Yeah. Right? And so that really bright boundary that was immutable. When I'm at work, I'm sorry, I'm 100% work. And when I'm at home, I'm sorry, I'm 100% at home. That worked really well. And then the flip side of that, when I uh, actually joined Microsoft, is I did the exact opposite. And so like I volunteered, there was a period of time where I volunteered to like support some stuff in Europe. And so I would get up and I would work from like 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. before my kids were awake. And then I would be off from like 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. because I'd get them up. I had to drive. Everybody had to go to a different school. Different school. (laughs) Life is hard. And so it was like two whole hours in the morning to get people fed and packed up and shoes on, which is always harder than it should be, and get them carted all over the county and then be at my desk. And then we're talking like 3.30 in the afternoon. I was out of there because I had to pick them up and everybody has a different sport. It's in a different flipping county. You had to drive all over the state for two hours. And then like, okay, I'm doing that. And then I had like an hour that I could catch up. Like I'm doing email on my phone and stuff. And then I had like an hour that I could take a meeting and then it was dinner and homework and then bedtime. And I was back at work supporting Asia. And so I had this like super fluid day where it's like work, family, work, family, work. Uh, and and absolutely the opposite of what I'd done what I'd done before, but that worked as well, right? As long as I, in both cases, as long as I sort of knew what the rules of the road were, and we could balance the rules of the road, then everything could fall into place. What I worry about is um, organizations, particularly those in part-time hourly industries. Yeah. That put people on call where they can't depend on a schedule. Yeah. Right. And especially if they have small kids, especially if there's someone in your life that you're responsible for who is medically complicated, especially if these other things are going on, those schedules are just untenable because they put you in impossible positions. And so it's been interesting to see some of the evolution uh, where, again, this is a an architectural feature of work, the evolution where uh, the predictability matters. Um, more so than the specificity. Yeah, completely. Isn't it the predictability? It's like, it's expectations. I think the topic of expectations is such an interesting one. But when we know what's expected, when we're clear about those expectations, it's such a healthier place to be than when you're in this place of ambiguity, right? Or this place of like, uh, and this is what kills me about like, um, the, um, the, the time off, one of the DTO, I'm missing the first word, um, like the the time off that's flexible, that you can take as much time oh, off as you the, want. Yeah, the unlimited PTO. Unlimited PTO. 
And so that's what's hard, right? Is that you see, and the research, you know, says this over and over again, is that people don't like it because they don't know really truly what's expected. And the clarity isn't there. And they tend to take less vacation when they're on unlimited PTO than when they have a fixed amount. Exactly. So, for example... Once a week, my boss gets an email be like, hey, you're bumping up against the upper limit of your PTO. Like, you need to take some because it will stop accruing. And yeah. it's like, oh, I know that I need to take some because I'm getting nasty grams now that say, girl, you got to get out of here. Right. But if it was unlimited, you'd never get Discretionary. Discretionary was the t- word I was looking for. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, if you don't have those really clear expectations that, no, we want you to take this time off and we're telling you how much, right? Yeah. It's really tricky. Well, I can't believe, I mean, our time is almost over already. Oh we're going to go on and on with you. Um, let's just kind of go to the last question I have for you. And when we think about the future of oh, yeah. positive work and how that intersects with people analytics. So as we look ahead, how do you really envision the evolution of the people analytics you know, function intersecting with positive psychology and these topics that we've been talking about with, related to well-being and positive psychology? Oh, gosh, I love that question. Uh, and I'm going to give you two totally contradictory answers. The first is I am really excited about taking advantage of a lot of the scaled AI types of tools. Yeah. So some of the quantified self stuff, some of the, some of the NLP stuff. I really think that there's potential in that to find where people have energy and where folks are most productive and to help people manage their lives so they know here is the time of day when I'm going to do my most productive heads down work. Here's the time of day when I should be having my meetings. Like I think there's a lot of uh, sort of the personalized medicine that we can do about how to structure work for those people who have knowledge work jobs where that's possible. Similarly, I think there's really, really interesting. This is getting more into IO psychology than, than people analytics per se, but I think there are really fascinating things coming down the pipe with robotics mm. and there's fantastic things with sort of exoskeletons and whatnot that can work with injury prevention and create opportunities for folks who have various physical challenges or where the work is just simply too demanding for a human where you can have sort of a human, um, human machine interface or, or shared system. And I think that's really interesting. And then as a total flip side, I am really, really, really excited uh, to see the field, which has spent the last decade in the thrall of cool new techniques. Kind of remember that psychology is at the root and really go deep in qualitative work and meaning making. Right. There's so many things that even from one company to the next, the cultural context is different enough that the same action can have really different meanings and therefore really different impact on someone. Yeah. And there are, there was a time when you and I were both earlier in our careers when you'd be more likely to see sort of an anthropologist or a marketing person or you'd have qualitative work in there. And then sort of the data scientists came in. And we've made tremendous advances with adding in those technologies, but we've gotten a little flooded on the engineering side and we've kind of forgotten how to do really rich qualitative work, how to really understand what esoteric thing might be causing someone pain that we could mitigate. Yeah. Um, 
think about like way back in the nineties when the Americans Disabilities Act came out, you had to separate like essential functions from the, of the job versus like the typical ones, right? How do we apply that same mental framework to other parts of the job where there's some that you just kind of can't get around? But there's a lot here that's more habit or could be distributed in different ways. And if that's the thing that's causing us pain for folks who may be neurodiverse in some way or any number of other personal or medical or any other, um, you know, little human variation, how do we make sure that work can create environments where lots of folks can thrive and you can sort of have a rising tide that lifts all boats? I think combining qualitative and the quantitative and thinking really expansively about what people bring, what managers and leaders bring, and then sort of what business process brings really has tremendous upside to, to doing good things. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been so wonderful, Alexis. Thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation so much. We could keep, I know I could keep going. There's so much to talk about here, but super grateful for you participating in this podcast today. So thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks for setting it up. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.